Welcome to This Grit and Grace Life. You've got questions, we've got answers. From the boardroom to the bedroom, car lines to college, single, married, or single again, we're bringing real answers to help you live and love your grit and grace life. Welcome to This Grit and Grace Life podcast. I'm Darlene Brock. Hey friends, I'm Julie Bender. Julie, you know, today we're going to talk to a guest about raising children in this culture, which we know could be challenging, but, you know, I kind of want to talk about raising children in general and some of the funny, weird things through time that people have done. I mean, I feel like that's very timely for me. Maybe I could get some good ideas of ways that has been done in the past, although I'm also slightly frightened by some of the things that you have unearthed. Did you know that a popular parenting tradition in Ireland is to sprinkle a crumbled piece of the parent's wedding cake on top of their newborn's head while the baby is being baptized? This is to symbolize the circle of life. Now, trust me, I like when people sprinkle cake over me. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> But this seems odd, yes? Yeah, and what, every newborn baby? So you have several of them. So how old is your cake and how do you keep it in your <laughs> you freezer? You keep little squares. Like, okay, if we want five kids. We need at least five, <laughs> five squares of Wowza. cake. Yeah. All right. I know this one just um, really got you. In an disturbing. Effort, yeah, it is disturbing, but we're going to do it anyway. In an effort to expose their babies to fresh air and sunlight, city dwellers in the early 20th century hung baby cages outside their windows and placed their babies in them. Now, the listener doesn't see the weird picture that we have in our notes, but I mean, I think that baby cages is just a phrase you don't want to be caught using, endorsing. <laughs> Probably not. And we will put this picture in the show notes oh so gosh. you can see it. But there is literally a baby laying on his stomach, smiling for all he's worth in the sunlight as his mom gazes on. It is bizarre. Bizarre. Apparently, at age five, kids can understand the concept of positive thinking. It's funny, I'm trying to remember Lincoln a couple years back, like, okay, so that's when he sort of started to get it. They learn this by watching how their parents react to problems to help them feel better, which also feels incredibly convicting, because do I always <laughs> react positively when things are going awry? Um, My husband would say no. <laughs> well, none of us do, Julie. I mean, that screaming when things are going badly probably is not a good example. All right. I, I found this one a little bit interesting. Parents in Spain typically let their children stay up until 10 p.m., believing it helps kids learn how to socialize. No, thank you. I like my kid in bed at 7.31 p.m. <laughs> so that I can socialize with my husband. Yeah, I, I, that's kind of what I was wondering. So in Spain, are the, the adults socializing from 10 till 12, or what is the deal? I don't know. That is definitely different. I don't know where this study came from, but they say 91% of Americans said that parenting is their greatest joy. Parents of various backgrounds and ethnicity also stated that being a parent is also their biggest challenge. I would probably reverse that statement. I know. I'm like, I mean, I could agree once I heard the second half. Uh -huh. Yeah, I, I would say it's probably your biggest challenge and some days greatest joy and some days there are days of terror and some days you think, I did not know I could be this furious at a little human. Absolutely. Which really kind of brings us to sort of the topic at hand today. We are facing a culture, a day and age, a, um, you know, a, a 
shifting sense of values in the the lives that we're living and that our kids are growing up into and it can bring a sense of dread a sense of fear or or maybe even apathy like there's no helping the way you know the world is going and how can we protect our kids from inevitable pain or doom true and i think preparing them to deal with the culture when we are women of faith and we believe absolutely that the Bible is true and what it says is true and there's a good reason behind everything that's there which is becoming more counter to a lot of things that's in the culture today. So we decided we wanted to bring someone in who this is kind of his life work. His name is Dr. Jim Dennison. Dr. Jim Dennison is a cultural scholar, pastor, author, and the co-founder and chief vision officer of the Dennison Forum, which is a Dallas-based nonprofit that comments on current issues through a biblical lens. Prior to launching Dennison Forum in 2009, he served as a pastor in Texas and Georgia. He holds a PhD and a Master of Divinity from the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He and his wife, Janet, live in Dallas, Texas, and they have two sons and four grandchildren. Welcome to this Grit and Grace Life podcast, Dr. Dennison. It's really good to have you today. So glad to be with you today, Darlene. Thanks for the privilege. When I saw that we were going to be interviewing you and what we were going to be talking about, I breathed a little sigh of relief because as a mom to a seven-year-old with a baby girl on the way, times feel pretty uncertain as a parent. So we're looking forward to our conversation, knowing that you have some wisdom or at least, um, you know, some idea on how parents can navigate kind of the troubled waters we're parenting in these days. Thank you, Julie. It really is a challenging day. There always have been challenging days, obviously. Obviously, there's mm-hmm. never been a time from Cain and Abel, obviously, to the present where there haven't been parenting challenges. But as the father of two sons and the grandfather of four perfect grandchildren, <laughs> perfect uh, grandchildren, yes, uh-huh. inherited original sin, skipped every one of them. I don't know how that happened. I didn't know that was possible, but it is nonetheless true, I think. But nonetheless, I certainly want to partner with you today any way I can as we try to equip parents in these days. You know, Jim, back in the 60s and 70s, there were a couple of songs, Ball of Confusion and Eve of Destruction. I'm sure you're too young to remember those. Um, but I am. Yeah, yeah, you are, Julie. You absolutely are. Um, but nevertheless, we, you know, at that time, we kind of thought the world was out of control, and it is even more so. And I know you have a book coming out called The Coming Tsunami, and kind of, kind of sounds like what we talked about then, but... It is true. So tell us a little bit about what that is and where it started. So we kind of get the groundwork for this. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, the book really comes out of something I've been observing my entire career. My basic work is as a cultural apologist. My calling is to speak biblical truth to cultural issues. So I do that with our daily article, with our website content, with videos and speaking and all of that. So for a long time, going back to my study of philosophy in seminary, teaching philosophy at one point, I've been fascinated by cultural ideas, cultural trends. And I have to say to you, And I'm sorry if this sounds alarmist or sounds on some level hyperbolic, but I've become convinced in recent months that Bible-believing Christians are facing a rising tide of opposition in our culture that is unprecedented in American history. And I just have to tell you, I've not said those words before recent months. It's not something I've been saying for 10 years or even a year, but I've become that convinced. So the model we're using, the metaphor in the book and in this larger movement is this idea of a tsunami. We're not so familiar with those in the United States, although you'd see them in Hawaii, obviously, Japan, the Pacific Rim. But tsunamis are almost always caused by underwater earthquakes you don't see. 
So there are these earthquakes offshore. For instance, there was one 45 miles off the shore of Japan back in 2001, an underwater earthquake that caused a tsunami that killed nearly 16,000 people, destroyed 120,000 homes, damaged 760 structures, cost $235 billion in damage. Mm -hmm. And it was caused by an earthquake you didn't see that produced the tidal wave you did. I believe there are four earthquakes, as it were, four cultural moves if you want to think of them that way, that are causing this rising tide of opposition to biblical values. And that's what the book kind of unpacks is what those are, where they came from, and what we can do to reverse the tide. It's always too soon to give up on God. So we want this to be a word, not just a warning, but of hope. I, I'm glad to hear you saying that, you know, in the book, not only are you telling us what has happened, but offering hope. Because I know as parents, sometimes parenting itself can feel hopeless. You don't see the changes that you're hoping to instill in your kids, regardless of what's happening culturally. You know, you're worried about your child's heart and are they really understanding the faith truths you're trying to teach them. So I'm grateful to hear that you also share a message of hope. Because you're talking about the cultural shift being away from faith, you know, what do you say to parents who maybe are struggling with whether or not they should even try to instill biblical values in today's day and age? First of all, it's a valid question. It's really something that you're wondering as we become so countercultural. Are we raising kids who are going to be so different from the culture that they're going to be ostracized at school, that they're not going to fit in, that we're setting them up for some kind of cultural failure kind of going forward? Is very much an operative question in our culture. It's kind of an example of what we're talking about. I'd take us back to the first century, back to the biblical era, when what it was to follow Jesus then was far more countercultural than it is even today. Mm. When the opposition that our kids would be facing if they followed Jesus was literally life and death mm. on a level we're certainly not facing in this country. We could talk about that North Korea, perhaps, and uh, some of the Muslim world, but certainly not in this country. And yet in that day, it was such an, uh, an imperative in the biblical era that they raise children to know and follow Jesus because that's what's best for their kids. Hmm. Our kids are better off knowing Jesus than not knowing him. They're better off being obedient to his word. They're better off living according to his will. Something my wife taught our boys all the time they were growing up was live a life God can bless. That was kind of a mantra for us. Janet says it all the time. Live a life God can bless. God can bless you more when you're obedient to his will than when you're not, even if there's a price you have to pay on the other side of that in the public culture. Mm -hmm. So we, the more we love our kids, the more we want them to love God and then prepare them for the cost that may come on the other side of that. Oh, that uh, I love that, Jim, but I'm sitting here going, ah, okay, so we're telling our kids all the things that are being taught culturally, whether it's about gender or whether it's about lifestyle or whatever, are contrary to what the Bible says. So when they have to stand up for what they know to be truth, but the culture is looking at them as if they're unloving, unkind, uh, not understanding. I mean, that's hard for adults to do, mm -hmm. let alone kids. Sure. So how do you prepare them for that? Yeah, it's very difficult. It really is. And I think there are two functions here. One side of it, and Rod Dreher's taught this in his book, The Benedict Option, how urgent and vital it is that we create community for our kids of people who are following Jesus. So they have friends that really are living biblically. So they're part of families and extended relationships where they're not on their own, where they don't feel like it's them against the world out there. I think that couldn't be more vital you know, to be helping our kids to have friends and be in relationships. Why churches are so vital these days and children's ministries and youth ministries and giving them a community 
where they do feel at home as followers of Jesus. Yeah. And then the second thing is to do all we can. And this is a challenge for adults, as you say, do all we can to help them understand it's because we love people that we want them to know about Jesus and live by his word. Mm-hmm. We're not doing this because we're hateful because we're homophobic or bigoted or prejudiced. We're doing this because we love people enough to give them God's best. And that's what we're helping our kids and their friends know. We're not imposing our values. We're not being intolerant. We're helping them know God because that's the best way to live their lives. So if we can see ourselves as giving a gift rather than as defending an ideology, that's the move. And I think that's vital for parents as well as for children in these days. We're not culture warriors, here is the point. We're not out here to take on the culture. We're not here to be antagonistic. We're not here to see ourselves as fighting an enemy. We're here to be grace givers. We're beggars helping beggars find bread. We're simply giving others what God's given us. And the more they reject this gift, the more they need this gift. To the degree we can teach our kids to think that way, I think that's the best way to go forward. So I'm sure every mother listening is thinking, okay, I agree with what Dr. Dennison is saying, but what does that practically look like? What are some examples of how we instill these values in our kids in everyday conversations and, you know, in, in parenting styles? Great question. The first thought that comes to me, Julie, is it has to do with our spirit because they'll pick up on our spirit. Mm-hmm. When they're watching us watch the news, mm-hmm. when they're listening to us talk about things going on in the culture, when they kind of observe the way that we're engaging the larger world, they'll pick up whether they're to be in this kind of culture warrior kind of animosity spirit or whether they're to love the culture and love people, whether people love us or not. And so, so imperative as it's always been, but especially now that we watch how we are and who we are around our kids and what we're emoting, what we're communicating by the way we're engaging the culture ourselves. We're setting a model and an example of a grace giver as opposed to a culture warrior sort of an approach and a thought. Then the second thing I think is to prepare them ahead of time for what they're likely to experience on a very practical level. If for instance, we get some knowledge, information, thought, possibility that they might, for instance, have a friend who has same-sex parents or might be invited over to a sleepover where they're same-sex parents or something just to pick that as an example. We want to process that ahead of time. We want to be able to respond to that rather than having to react to it. We want to talk to our spouse about that, maybe talk to our pastor or children's minister, kind of decide ahead of time, what are the likely practical issues we're going to have to think about here? Is it possible that at the age of our kids, I'll be dealing with a transgender student? What about somebody of a different gender who's in the restroom facility or in the shower? Without being paranoid about this, try to figure out what practical issues might be out there and how do we prepare ourselves now and how do we prepare our kids now for the day when that comes? And then, of course, and we all know this, but I'll just say it, the bottom line in all of this is praying, constantly asking God for wisdom, for direction, asking God to give us words we didn't know to say, to give us his spirit to manifest the fruit of the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. God loves our kids even more than we do. God will help us parent our kids in this culture if we'll ask. And so this is a day to be even more Spirit-dependent than maybe we've ever been. I think one of the challenges is how we present, all right? Because we always want to couch everything in our primary responsibility as Christians, which is love God and love others. That's always, that always needs to be our entry point to every conversation we have between ourselves, with our spouse, or 
you know, our friends, whomever, and then with our children. How do we set that up to do it in such a way that they understand, first and foremost, they are to look at these people that biblically are living a lifestyle that they don't believe is right, but they are to look at them with the same eyes of compassion that our Savior does. Thank you for asking that difficult question because it's that balance between loving and condoning. Mm -hmm. It's that balance, isn't it, between acceptance and on some level affirming, you know? Uh, we can't affirm what's harmful. The more I love someone, the less I want to affirm that which I know is going to be harmful for them. But at the same time, I don't want to cut off the ability to be in the relationship by virtue of how I go about doing this. So the first thing, and it's obvious, but I'll say it, the first thing to do is to be praying for the Holy Spirit to manifest the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. So love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control are what the Spirit is doing in us and through us. Help us to love people who don't love us. Help us to love people that don't love our Lord. Help us to love people that aren't following Jesus, whatever the, the area might be, whatever the, the sin pattern or the issue might be. So first of all, I'm praying that through the day. Lord, help me to love people the way you love people is the first kind of prayer. And we can teach our kids that, I think, at a very early age. Lord, help me love people the way you love people can kind of be a mantra for us. And then second, we adopt the attitude that says, I'm just as broken as you are. Mm -hmm. I am just as fallen as you are. I may not be committing your sins, but you may not be committing my sins. Mm -hmm. So we want to get out of this superior position that says you're committing this sin or you believe this, and therefore I'm better than you. Rather, we want to say the ground's level at the foot of the cross where beggars helping beggars find bread, as I said. And we really want this spirit of humility that says I'm simply giving you what God's given me, not because I'm better than you, absolutely not, but because I love you enough to share this with you. And then a third thing we learned from Irma Bombeck many years ago. In one of her <laughs> she columns. was great. Oh, my gosh. What a gift to all of us. And she said she decided as a mother, I love my kids enough to let them hate me. Hmm. There are times when we have to love people enough to share difficult truth with them because we love them. Wouldn't it be easier if we weren't having this conversation? Mm -hmm. None of us wants to be in a place where we're having to equip our kids to deal with such an unchristian, non-Christian, anti-Christian culture. Wouldn't it be easier if we could just let, let people be what they are, let people do what they want to do, make tolerance our only real value? So let's keep in mind this spirit, as I've said before, that we're giving God's gift to people. We're paying forward what's been paid to us. As opposed to the culture warrior, I'm better than somebody else. I think it's vital that we keep that spirit in mind. My assumption is it's probably a little bit different when your child enters the teen years, because mm -hmm. there's kind of an understanding that every child has some level of rebellion, even if it's just at the level of no longer trusting that your parents really know everything about everything, which is kind of part of the innocence <laughs> of, you know, your younger children's years. Is there a shift that happens when they enter being teenagers and, you know, you start to see some of that natural, you know, division? No doubt about that, Julia. And even my sons, as nearly perfect as they were you know i'm sure <laughs> wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute jim you can, no uh, uh you yeah, can't tell uh, you know. uh, yeah um, yeah exactly yeah uh -huh. if my wife were on this podcast she might right now be grimacing just a bit perhaps i do know enough about uh, developmental psychology to know that one of the most natural things as we grow older and get into adolescence for all of us is to come to a place of understanding our own identity and part of what that means is that we have to create some kind of psychological distance from our parents' identity. That's natural. That's normal. That's healthy. 
we don't want our children as adults to be dependent on us for who they are. We want them to discover who they are. We want them to discover their own identity. And there's a certain amount of what kind of feels like rebellion inside of all of that, that in a healthy way is just a sense of, of discovering who God made them to be. And we want to endorse that. We want to affirm that. We want to encourage our kids to discover who they are in God's calling, knowing that some of the experimentation goes the wrong direction on occasion, that it's just inevitable that there are going to be times when part of that process moves to a stage of rebellion or a stage of false choices or wrong choices, those sorts of things. So as they come into teenage years, the first thing I think we want to be doing is making a list of things that we know we're going to have to get ahead of right now. We're going to have to get ahead of dating issues. We're going to have to get ahead again of internet issues and pornography issues. We're going to have to get ahead of substance abuse issues. We're going to have to get ahead of the things that are just going to be so much more available to them when they're 13 than when they were three. We may need some help with that, whether we're talking to online counselors or friends, parents, there's resources there that can give us more specific about that in our particular demographic. But nonetheless, as parents, we wanna be proactive about the things we can expect them to be engaging at this season in their lives. And then again, we wanna be as proactive in preparing ourselves and preparing them for those moments when they come. I have a daughter that's on a date. It's not if, but when the boy tries to go too far. What are we going to do about that? We're on a, we have our kids that are at a party. It's not if, but when somebody starts drinking alcohol mm -hmm. or somebody brings out drugs, what are we going to do about that? And again, the more we can be responsive rather than reactive, the better. Understanding that as they're teenagers, we're more partnering with them now than we are dictating to them. We're no longer able or even wanting to be in the role of making the decisions for them, but rather asking and processing with them. It's more the question. So what do you think the right thing to do is if at the party on Friday, turns out somebody brought some alcohol or somebody brought some drugs? How do you think we ought to respond? How do you think the right way to do this is? And create some conversation around that. Always have a safety net, always have a number they can call, always have a way that you can be available to them in the midst of that, but help them to process ahead of time is I guess what I'm saying. Uh, and that's especially urgent in an adolescent season of life. You know, when my youngest was a senior in high school, she actually spent her senior year in the community college. She was doing mm -hmm. what's called dual enrollment. Sure. That year at, oh, I guess she was almost 18 years of age, 17, turning 18 that year. She wanted to take an ethics class mm -hmm. at the community college which, oh. of course, I looked at the syllabus of the ethics class and thought, oh, my word, I cannot let this enter my child's brain. Sure. But How not to be ethical, essentially, was what the class probably mm -hmm. was. Absolutely. That, that yeah. Nothing is purely ethical. Sure. So she said, I really want to take it. And I said, if you take this, are you willing to discuss it with us? Mm -hmm. And she said, okay, mom, that's the deal. I really want to take it. So we let her take it. We had unbelievably long conversations. Uh, you know, right. when she was five, I could say, do not lie. When she's yeah. 18, she said, but what about the Holocaust and hiding yep. people? You know, they lied. Right. Is it morally right, morally wrong? And yeah. it, was, it was a challenge, and it was amazingly great at the same time. And she came up with some conclusions that we did not agree with, sure. but they were hers. Sure. And they weren't all horrible or terrifying. Mm -hmm. They were 
her finding her way as she was growing into adulthood. So I would say to a lot of parents as their kids age out of their home, don't be terrified of everything because they're going to learn it anyway. They're going to hear it anyway. So if you keep lines of communication open, you have a shot at keeping them from taking it too far. Now you're partnering. Now you're dialoguing together. Now we're exploring together. They're going to be there anyway, unless we're going to shut them up in some bubble. That's absolutely going to be the case now with the internet more than ever before. Social media, all that goes inside that. So let's learn this together. Let's reframe the challenge as an opportunity. Let's take an ethics class that's certainly not being presented within a biblical worldview as a lab by which to discuss what she's going to be confronting when she goes to college and for the rest of her life. Let's have conversations about situation ethics versus absolute ethics. Let's have a conversation here about the degree to which truth is personal, individual, and subjective versus truth is absolute and objective. And let's take advantage of the privilege of the challenge is a way to see this. I think that's a brilliant example of being proactive and being partners with our kids as we navigate this world together. If the world would hold still for a while and we could identify the only issues they're going to face for the next 10 years, it might be different but we're gonna be facing with artificial intelligence in a year or two, ethical challenges we don't even know right now how to discuss. For example, we're going to be facing in the coming days with artificial uh, reality capacities, virtual reality capacities, with um, cyborg medicine and genomics and all that's happening there. There's a brave new world out there. And the more we navigate it with our kids rather than for our kids, the more I think we have a shot at doing this in a way that most honors the Lord. So I think a question I'm kind of rolling around in my own brain, especially, like I said, I have a new baby on the way, so it's fine. I'm not terrified. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But can we actually overpower the scary message that our culture is sending? You know, where is the line of relying on our faith and just trusting that if we tell our kids about God, everything will be fine and kind of, you know, kind of pushing that, um, that biblical narrative Mm -hmm. in hopes of, you know, them grasping it themselves. Sure. Great question. And congratulations, by the way, with the baby on the way. And, uh, I I understand why you'd have no reason for concern or fear whatsoever. Right. Uh, It is an act of faith always has been to bring a child into the world from Cain and Abel, but it certainly is the case today. So really there are three answers to the question, Julie, I think, and the middle one, I think is the right one. The one side is this Christ against culture model. Richard Niebuhr had these various models by which Christ against culture in this classic book. He wrote Christ and culture some years ago. One is a Christ against culture model. Let's be Amish. Let's pull back. Let's withdraw. Let's keep our kids out of the culture as best we possibly can for as long as we can. I don't think that's a biblical model. I don't even think it's realistic, Mm -hmm. but it's tempting, isn't it? To keep them away from the culture as long as we possibly, possibly can. Culture is going to find them. I don't know that that's realistic, but that's one option. The opposite option of that, a Christ of culture model, would be to say, let's go where the culture goes. Let's keep up with things. Let's be relevant, whatever that means. And whatever we have to jettison or reinterpret or reframe along the way, then let's just do it. And we're seeing that happening. Let's just kind of go where the culture goes and try to stay relevant, which again is, I think, the wrong approach. The right approach, the middle ground, is a Christ-transforming culture model where we're being salt and light. Mm -hmm. Salt touches and changes everything he touches. Light always defeats the darkness. So to your overcoming kind of a metaphor, the good news is God is on his throne. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. 
He is in charge of all of this. He's got this. None of this surprises him. He has a call for our lives, not only where we are, but when we are. Mm-hmm. By his providence, we weren't alive 100 years ago or 100 years from now if the Lord tarries. If he couldn't use us in this season, we wouldn't be in this season. So let's teach our kids to be missionaries. Let's teach our kids to follow Jesus and help other people follow Jesus, knowing that we're not overcoming the culture. It's not about us. Human words can't change human hearts, but the Holy Spirit can. Hmm. If God can change Saul of Tarsus, God can change anybody, right? If the Holy Spirit could birth out of a tiny group of persecuted Christians, the mightiest movement in spiritual history, God can do that today. God can use us today. So let's be more than conquerors to him who loved us. Let's take a victorious position that says, I am filled with Christ. I'm empowered with Christ. God's going to use me to make a difference in the culture. Let's be missionaries. Let's be salt and light. Let's be proactive. Let's be courageous because our hope is not in us, but in Jesus. That kind of attitude, I think, most honors the Lord and positions us to be blessed by the Father. Mm, I love that, Jim. You know, and I think the other thing I would add is let's not be afraid of it. Let's not be afraid of the people who are living lives that are contrary to God's word. Jesus wasn't when he walked this earth. He went to dinner with them. You know, he spent time with them. He invited him into his world. And I think as Christians, we so often miss that, that when we're fighting the culture, we think that we're fighting the person and we're not. Mm -hmm. We're fighting, we're fighting what is within that culture that we know does not stand for biblical truth. But I think while we're doing that, we need to learn to love, to love every single, like you said, you know, beggar, beggar, I'm a beggar, absolutely. So, you know, I need to realize that and love them like I should and treat them with respect and honor as Jesus did. Absolutely. That by that just on a persuasional level is obviously the right way to persuade somebody to biblical truth to begin with. The right way to present that worldview is as a changed person helping people experience change. Mm-hmm. It's as people giving what we've been given. My friend John Stone Street, who does marvelous work with the Colson Center, has a quote that I reference a lot. He says, ideas have consequences. Bad ideas have victims. Mm-hmm. Let's see people who have been victimized by the bad ideas of our culture as people who therefore even more need the grace of God. Not again that we're better than anybody else. I'm just as broken as they are. I'm committing sins they're not committing. But let's understand that they are victims of something the enemy has done. The Bible says, it's very clear, that the natural man doesn't understand the things of God. They are spiritually discerned. Janet used to teach our boys, lost people act like lost people. So did I. Mm -hmm. And so let's understand these are victims and people who need what we've been given, not because we're better, but because we are custodians of grace. Well, Dr. Dennison, you've given us so much to think about, and I really appreciate you joining us today. I'm confident our friends and listeners are now wanting to get your book. So tell us a little bit about where they can continue to learn from you and get The Coming Tsunami. Well, thank you for that, Julie. The website is denisonforum.org, D-E-N-I-S-O-N forum.org. Write an article every day based on that day's news. It goes out to about 400,000 subscribers, about 2.9 million in social. It's got a fascinating title. It's called The Daily Article. <laughs> We're really good at marketing, you know, with, with really glitzy titles here, obviously. That's a really creative name, but that's it's what it's called, The Daily Article. So anyhow, and that can be found there on the website as well. It's all free. All our digital resources are free. All our other content is there as well. They can see the book there, or if they go to the website, thecomingtsunami.com, that's a landing page specifically for the book. 
They can get it as an ebook. They can order it as a print copy. It lands on January 25th. A lot of other resources around this metaphor of the tsunami on that website as well. So again, it's thecomingtsunami.com. And that would take folk listening to this directly to that landing page. Perfect. Well, I am so thankful you agreed to join us today, uh, Jim. And we have gleaned so many things. And, you know, I just want to thank you and encourage you. Continue. Continue yeah. what you're doing because we certainly need it in these days. Absolutely. Well, Darlene, thank you. It's been a privilege to be on with you and Julie. And again, as a father and a grandfather, uh, we're in it together, aren't we? That's right. We certainly and, are. Um, these are days we need each other. I love your podcast. I love the degree to which you guys are just by God's grace, encouraging your listeners to follow Jesus and to do it together. And I want to pour fuel on that. Grateful for you and glad to be with you today. Thank you. You know, there was a quote from Billy Graham before I get into the Bible verse that I really liked. And it says, one badge of Christian discipleship is not orthodoxy, but love. Mm -hmm. And instead of focusing on all the truths that we know to be truth, which I think is incredibly important, and to teach our children that, I kind of think we should start by this. This verse, these verses are in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. This is how we should conduct ourselves as we teach them and stand for truth. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It does not irritate. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice over injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. I know I'm thinking about some of the things that Dr. Dennison shared with us, and I'm not going to lie, I can still if left to sit and think about the state of affairs in this day and age, I can continue to be somewhat paralyzed um, in all that we're facing as parents. But I really appreciated that he gave us some very practical advice, really beginning with having the attitude of being more proactive than reactive and, you know, bracing ourselves by knowing what types of conversations we need to have with our kids before they even know that we need to have them. He instructed us to keep humble as we have these types of conversations and to recognize that, like you're saying with that verse, we, we should lead more with love than, um, you know, ritual or trying to um, have stark rules or, you know, laws that we're passing down, but to be humble and loving. And then when we talked about raising teens, I, I loved the picture that he said of really creating questions and seeing ourselves as partnering with our kids versus dictating how they're meant to live. You know, and I think ultimately, Julie, I want to encourage our listeners that they are, as Dr. Dennison stated, here at this time because they're supposed to be your children are supposed to be here at this time so don't lose hope in that actually cling to hope that you're in the right place the right time you're the right parent with the right children and there is always hope and transformation that can be found in your hearts your kids hearts and those around you be sure to check the show notes so you can get onto Dr. Dennison's website to get that daily article and check out his book. We look forward to being with you next week on This Grit and Grace Life. 
Thanks for tuning in to another episode of This Grit and Grace Life. Make sure you've subscribed and rated and reviewed the show so more friends can find us. You can also share about this episode on your social media or send it to a friend you think it could help. You can find everything we talked about in this episode on our website, gritandgracelife.com, where you'll also find plenty of other articles from other women answering questions you may have.